Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome to another Invested Investor podcast. I'm sat opposite Tommy Davis. Tommy is an advisor, a speaker, an angel investor, an African early stage tech advocate, and also a mentor. He's known for many things across the world, including being an author and the current president of the African Business Angel Network. But that is just what it says on LinkedIn. Tommy, you are a self-prescribed systems analyst. Let's just hear about your background and where this all started. Well, I say I'm an analyst because that's how I came out of Miami, University of Miami, into my first role, which was with uh, IBM. But uh, the crust of myself is that bridge between technology and business and has been all throughout my career. Recently, however, I discovered <laughs> that I also had, underlying all of this, a social streak. So it makes for an interesting triangle of uh, technology, commercial, and social responsibility. So where and when did you discover this social socialist personality trait? Funny enough, just recently I was at the British Library and I ran into a Nigerian lecturer at the University of East London where I used to be a mentor in the days when I was uh, head of IT research for Marks and Spencer. I mentored at uh, the University of East London and then it triggered the fact that even when I was at IBM in Miami, I'd also mentored in Big Brothers of America. So fast forward to what I'm doing now, which is called mentor-driven capital in angel investing. And you can sort of see how this history has unfolded. So this mentoring has been going back since the early days of the 80s. Yeah, for me personally, and I, it didn't dawn on me until I ran into this young lady because she triggered the East London mentoring program that I'd been doing at MS and the fact that as I sit in front of you, okay, if you go and look, you can Google it, you'll see that we're pushing the concept for angel investors to actually lead first with mentoring. That way you get to know the entrepreneur, okay? And it makes it easier to make the investment decision. Okay. So and we'll go on to that a little bit later on in the podcast about why you became an angel investor. But let's talk a little bit about the early career and the transition to some of your social initiatives in Nigeria. 
Oh. Early career was a smorgasbord. I've, you know, like I said, I came out of Miami, became an SE at IBM, moved to Nigeria to do national service, which is mandatory for anybody that comes out of university. I did that with the French at Elf Aquitaine, where I very, very quickly demonstrated the fact that American technology was alive and well and coming to Africa. So the result and the effect of that is I helped build the network for oil and gas for ELF in terms of the marketing arm of it, which they call downstream in a very, very short period of time. Unfortunately, I lost my dad, hiked it back to England and um, joined M&S. Okay. Yeah. But during this time, had you just set up one laptop per child? No, that was much later in the game. In fact, it was at M&S that I met Nicholas Negroponte because he, at that time, was running the MIT Media Lab. And I, as IT research in M&S, was funding, you know, they were doing some cool stuff. I was funding research that he was doing, like, news in the future, 3D body scanning, you know, all kinds of fascinating stuff, which is what led, 10 years later, to me making the call and him coming to Africa for one laptop per child. Okay, so in the middle of this, you worked for M&S for seven years. Correct. And obviously you're mentoring on the side. That's correct. What about after M&S? Did you then set up a company? Yes, what had happened was when I was in Nigeria doing my national service, I'd set up my very first entrepreneurship. It was actually a working space. We called it a business center, if you remember business centers. Now sort of my very, very first adventure into entrepreneurship and what we're going to do was provide cool anyway. That was the first company. Other companies that then came along. The first was Striker, and that's what really led to all of this because Ollie and I, Oliver Power, is sort of uh, one of the founders of uh, Striker. Ollie and I had met when I was at M&S. And at M&S, I had built the very first Marks and Spencer website, and he was this entrepreneur from South Africa that had just sold his soda-making company, you know. So we became friends, and when he went back to South Africa, his cousin came up with the idea of a comic for African superheroes. So he gave me a call saying, look, you know, I want to do this. I need five grand. He says, okay, fine, let's do it. And then in discussions, we decided to pivot because I says, look, soccer is going to be the thing that sells this. We essentially created the African Royal the Rovers. The key thing being that the team members came from different parts of Africa. And that's how Super Strikers was born. Today, Super Strikers is Disney's first animated series from Africa. And I think we're doing about a million copies of the comic in about 30 countries. Wow. We have a YouTube channel in four languages. So there's English, there's Spanish, there's Portuguese, and the most interesting is Polish. Because in Polish, we have one 22-minute episode that's got something like about 7 million views. Wow, that's brilliant. So that was sort of the super company, and it's what dragged me into this, and I'll keep looking. So each of them, I'm looking for, what did we do in Striker that was different? It was the fact that we went from analog to digital. Okay, so the comic went from historic, all the other comics until we came along, weren't using DTP desktop publishing then, you know, to create comics. So we 
I say we, they did, you know, but I'm part of the company, uh, essentially came up with a mechanism where the artist could draw and then you could use lines and scan in and color. So the coloring guys became critical to, you know, so you had the writers, you know, who were, but in the middle, you know, were the artists who actually did the sketches and the guys who could do the line. So lining became one of the critical tasks. And once we, we got lining right, you know, which we still do today, boom, the rest of the say. So that's how that was done. So that was Striker. You said then that you got dragged into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's right? Or do you think that your natural progression of kind of doing a business degree and, and everything like that was the reason why? Have you ever thought about it? No, not that way. But you are right in that I've always felt conflicted between business and technology. Truth be told, I started life out as a software programmer. I was a mommy-dade and from COBOL to Fortran, PL1, Algol, you know, SJCL, you name it. That was my beginnings in this space. So I think I've always seen myself as a technology person. But when I really look at it, and truth be told, um, it's been business. Yeah. So how many companies have you either formed or run as a CEO? Run as a CEO? I ran Sproxel for a short while because we had to. I am your number two man in a team. I'm a team player. I do run my consultancy. Okay. But um, I've never seen myself as the lead man, but I've played on some very, very powerful teams and continue to do so. And those are the opportunities that I look for. And they're the ones. So being president of ABAN, I keep telling people is for me nominal only because I've got an amazing team in David and Rebecca and Ben and Alex and Stephen, okay? Sort of collectively, even though we're virtual, that's why it works, yeah. So you touched on ABAN there, which is the African Business Angel Network. Let's take a step back from that. You've had an entrepreneurial career, you're still going, your entrepreneurial career. You then found a new transition to become an angel investor. Mm -hmm. So why did you transition? What interested you about becoming an angel investor? Selfish a bit, you know. What I do is I bring ideas to life. And I just realize, you realize you can't bring all the ideas you want to life. But you know how to do it because it's something you enjoy doing and you continue to do. So when I discovered through Oliver and then there was a Shifi, Ashifi runs Sproxel. And what had happened was in my tech career, I'd had relationships with Intel and Intel Capital. And uh, Ashifi was introduced as having this great idea that Intel Capital liked but couldn't fund because it was too small a ticket item and it was too early for them. But if I could do something with it, they'd be... You know, so that's how Sproxel came to me. And um, we managed to reshape it it started out as pharmacovigilance, which is bad drugs being able to be identified by the punter before they consume it using the mobile phone, which I thought was real cool genius. Cut the long story short, we're heading towards the 100 million verified transactions. So if you take a drug, you can send a free SMS and tell if the drug is genuine or fake wow. before you buy it. Now, it may not mean much in this neck of the woods where we've got a lot of protection, but in emerging markets where 60 to 80% of the drugs are fake, 
that's a life saving and it's back again to what I was saying about social impact. So if you look at that, you look at one laptop per child, <laughs> you start to look at, you know, even the comic, which is education. Um, it's interesting why I'm seeing myself increasingly as a socialist as defined by those activities. Yeah. So is that your focus of investment, do you think, as well then? It seems to, but when I look at the portfolio now, which is different, so I've got Cafe Neo is like Starbucks. I was actually co-investing with friends. The ones I've led, Big Cabal, for example, is media. It's tech media. FlexiSaf is education software. SCDL is media again. Then TerraRave. TerraRave is logistics. It sounds as if the companies that you've led, mm-hmm. investment there, are they companies that you have your background, your industry background, such as MS? Oh, yeah. It's more tech enablement because I have a mental image on tech that I find a lot of the young CEOs don't have, which is that tech is the most structured thing in the world. You know, it's just once you understand that it's a stack, okay, it starts from the physical and goes all the way to the logical. And in between, there are different layers that sort of interface with each other. Hence, this so-called new term, API. But we've had APIs like in software from the very beginning. And that's what defines technologies, those layers and how they communicate with each other. Once you get that into your head, it makes it easier architecturally for you to be able to design solutions. What is the key advice you give to your entrepreneurs when you're sitting on a board or whether you're investing in their company? Begin with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey would say. All enterprise are ongoing concerns, okay? And you have to think of it that way. So whether you are building a platform that would allow teachers and parents and administrators to actually look at the development of the child or what you're doing is trying to tell stories to an audience that requires it for inspiration and motivation. Or you're actually trying to protect lives by, you know, helping to avoid dangerous intent. All of those must be within the context of commercial enterprise. And as long as it's within the context of commercial enterprise and technology supported, then I tend to find I take a shiny to it. Does that make sense? No, definitely. Is your focus the companies you invest in in Africa? Definitely. Uh, Only Africa. Sorry, I hesitated for a minute because I'm thinking, have I done anything in England? Yeah. In fact, I'll be even more stringent. It's strictly in Lagos, Nigeria, not even just Africa, but specifically Lagos, Nigeria. What's the reasoning behind that? That's me. I'm essentially, I'm a Yoruba boy or a Yoruba man or a Yoruba old man or whatever classification. But first and foremost, first amongst all of that, I'm Yoruba. Yoruba is a tribe of people that are essentially found in Western Nigeria. But out of the Yorubas also, I am from Lagos. And Lagos is separate, you know, it's this cosmopolitan. It's like being a Londoner, if from, from East London, right? I'm from somewhere called Isaleko, which is the bottom of Lagos, just like you've got East London, the Hackney, the Bowery, you know, da, 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 right. Okay, my part of Lagos is special to me. Okay, and we've been there generations. And so I want to be sure that the generations to come understand that that's sort of our genesis 
as a family. So you set up the Lagos Angel Network. Are all your investments through the network? Everything I do is through the Lagos Angel Network. You know, I, I have co-founders, you know, a number of uh, good co-founders who are still with us. Everything I do in terms of investment, I try to do with the Lagos Angel Network, though my mentoring is on a personal level. So what drove you to set up the African Business Angel Network? And who did you set it up with? I wish I could say I set it up, but... (laughs) (laughs) The African Business Angel Network, there is a gentleman by the name of Baibazal Tuntash. Ben White, I had known, uh, VC for Africa, and he'd mooted this idea of a pan-African angel investment, or he didn't say angel investment, pan-African early stage investment. Ben's broader, okay, than just angel investments. He, He was looking at the whole ecosystem, including startups, remember, which is where it grew, you know, and how to develop the whole startup ecosystem. But in addition to that, the investors, so the platform was balancing both. That's how VC4 Africa was created. And in developing both of those, one of the gaps he'd identified was that local investors grouped as angels were missing. So when we came along and formed the Lagos Angel Network, it was like, damn, that's what I'm talking about. You know, I don't know if you had that aha moment, but the thing is we did Angel Fair West Africa together and did some things together and eventually says, look, we really need to do something Pan-African. I says, okay, what do you have in mind? We'd been running, by then, it, I think it was our second Angel Fair, which we tagged onto the back of something or the other, that he said, okay, fine, um, the Europeans want to talk to us. Oh, right, fine, what do they have to say? And Baibar shows up, and he has a whole story to tell about his escapade in Nigeria, almost getting arrested for not having a yellow car and, and all kinds of stuff. But he made it, and his message from the president was like, look, we'd like to invite you guys over to the EBAN thing around slush in November. All right, fine, sounds. Anybody going? One Stossen said yes. I was game. And uh, we showed up in Helsinki. And in Helsinki, there was a whole bunch of us. And Candice Johnson, who was the president of uh, EBAN, says, I've heard about this whole EBAN. I've been following, tracking with Ben and everything else. I'm glad to see we're inaugurating you know, Aban and <laughs> okay, sounds interesting. And that's how we started. You know, that's the truth. What then happened was we went through a whole series of, okay, who's in, who's out? What do we do? What don't we do? We had a whole brainstorming session with all kinds of people around the table. Some dropped out as would be expected. Others who were in the shadows sort of stepped into the limelight as things have evolved. But We ended up, for some reason, I don't know, maybe it was because A, A ban is non-profit, B, high social impact in three defined areas, which is create the networks, educate the investors, and engage with the policymakers. I like clarity, you know, because they were so clear, you know, um, it was like, okay, you're president, fine. I'll take that charge. Let's see what we can do with this. And that was the genesis of ABAN. And how many years ago was that? This was 2015. So this is 2019. This will be the fourth year. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So what's next for ABAN investment in Africa? 
the early stage tech ecosystem. What can you see for the next five years or 10 years? Well, if we look at what we have today, investment into Africa has been doubling quite literally every 18 months to two years. And we know that this is unlikely to stop because as the chaos and as the challenges get more serious on this side, you know, we're starting to see the investments pour in there because of the opportunities that um, Africa presents. So that's sort of a given. The other given is that I don't expect to see the governments do a flip-flop overnight. They've been inept. They can't get the acts together. It's, it's a tougher, you know, and so on. So that's also a given. Development partners are umming and ahhing. But I believe that the volume, okay, the fact that you've got this latent consumer society that is growing younger, I'm starting to see a situation where they become self-generating economies. There's thinking on the ground that says, well, if you look at the fact that at one time the manufacturing center of the world was right here in the UK, we know when it moved to the US, okay, we've seen it move into the Asian tigers and we've seen it go into China. We're now starting to see it come into Africa. So it's going to be an interesting five years. They're not being driven by government, by the way. So what I'm talking about is independent of you know how there are layers. So my observation, this is independent. These, these are activities. They're, they're almost natural organic activities. The cost structures in China are no longer worth bearing. They have to transfer. It's cheaper to manufacture in Africa than in China. Okay, what do I need? And that's starting to happen. Documented, you can read up on it. So that's the context and the background for infrastructure. Sitting on top of that is it's creating a consumer class because the consequence of manufacturing is the creation of a consumer class. That will also happen. And you now have a youthful consumer class because we all recognize that the average age on the continent is under 18. The unknowns, how governments will play, what kind of rules they will and won't come up with, etc., etc. But again, if you are sitting where I'm sitting, which is, I'm looking at the local investor. I'm very clear on my focus. Okay, I'm looking at the guys who've, through entrepreneurship, managed to make something of themselves and how they can do that sustainably by betting on the next generation. So it's a very small net group of people that I have to talk to. But the impact, on the other hand, you know, I'm hoping touchable is more significant. Does that help? That really does. That really gives us an incredible insight into Africa, into what's coming up from, obviously, a force in ABAN. Well, there's something about, you've heard me say about Africa, you know, that I think the audience needs to be cognizant of. It's my own perception of how I see it also. And that is, the less you think of Africa as a monolithic whole, the better off you are able to deal with it. You have different constructs. So we have eight regional economic communities. We have the African Union, which everybody will tell you cannot speak for the continent, although it does contain the continent and is representative of the continent, but cannot speak for it. You have the eight regional economic communities, but you also then have 55 
sovereign states. Each a country with its own passport and citizens and all of that. So that's what makes up Africa. If you want to be commercial and be an angel and work in Africa with people like me, don't think that way. Please leave it there. Let's talk about cities, okay? That's how to have an African conversation, is to talk about the city in which you're focused. I'm a Lagos boy, but I can talk to a boy from Nairobi, just like I can talk to a girl from Cape Town. I can talk to a lady from Niamey or from Accra or from Cairo. That's the African language. And when you understand that there are a hundred cities that generate near 70% of what the continent's doing, it makes it slightly easier for you to have good conversations. Does that help? Yeah, it does. So let's just go back to what you said at the start about this triangle of tech, commercial and social. Mm -hmm. You're a known speaker, you're an educator, you're a mentor. What is it that helping others really gives you? And would you suggest other people if they have the opportunity to do the same thing? I'm not a guru, but (laughs) the answer that came to my mind is what is the one thing that you get more of the more you give? Think about it. The more of it you give out, the more you have. What's the one thing? It's love. So when you sit on that fundamental principle, you can then use it to explain just about any other aspect of nature. If you don't have it, you can't understand it. But when you do have it and you see it, so that's what I've just discovered. And that's why I feel almost cocky about what I did. (laughs) The fact that I've set out all my life trying to help is something, and it didn't occur to me till like a week ago that, hang on, dude, that's always defined you. Because I've always credited other people for that. And I've always admired it in other people, not recognizing that I myself was in possession of. Although I have had serious hints along the way and continue to. Yeah. You know, but um, it's just heartwarming to self-recognize. Yeah. Is that the word? Yeah. Yeah. So you've self-recognized this trait. What's next? Ooh. Are we writing another book? I've been looking at the inspiration for the book. I, I've had structures of the book. This crystallizes the African angel for me in a way which until this watershed moment, I hadn't really recognized what story I wanted to tell. You know how you know you have a story in you? The question is, okay, what's your story? And why does it matter to the person listening? And, and, you know, that's sort of where it's coming from now. It is the fact that helping others matters. And there is intrinsic rewards that you may not recognize, but, you know, you get to my stage of the game and you can look back. It's uncanny when you do it because I'm a very visual individual. So at the beginning of, of the year, I decided to get a notepad. Yeah. Okay. Which is what you're flicking for at the moment. Yeah. And in it, sort of do my thinking on paper. So you look at and you can analyze the different aspects of what you've done, of your work, so to speak. And of course, in my natural state, the first thing I'm looking at are all the failures. You know, oh, you went into this particular enterprise with so much euphoria and everything, you came out with your tail between your legs. 
you went into this one, you know, and it was amazing and you guys were going to conquer the world and what happened. But then it's back to what I was saying earlier about swapping sides. When you flip to the other side and says, but what are the positives? That's how I came across, for example, what I was saying about teams and the fact that the successful aspects of my work have been with teams. Yeah. That's an absolutely perfect conclusion of this podcast. And just like to say to listeners at the top of this is the words profile of success 2019. And anyone that is listening should just plan this out and understand what you want from the next year. That's it. Yeah. Amazing. Tony, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much much for recording a podcast with us and all the success for the future. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.